Welcome everyone to our morning service. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We started our new preaching series last Sunday, which we've entitled Bless Beyond Measure. And we've got to get a great look at the opening thoughts from the Apostle Paul. And he was the one that wrote this book, and he wrote it from his time of imprisonment. Paul went through several times of imprisonment, and it was during his first imprisonment that he wrote this book uh, to the Ephesians. And we're going to look at, in particular, the last part of chapter 1. I covered the first 14 verses last Sunday, and so today we're going to look at verses 15 through 23. In particular, I would really encourage you to open up your physical Bibles or your digital Bibles and to follow along with me. Uh, in my PowerPoint, I'm going to have sort of the sermon map and outline of the points that I'll be covering, but I don't have all the scripture verses uh, deliberately so that we just get into the habit of looking at our Bibles, seeing where the actual text is. You know, when it comes to learning, um, learning by audio is one aspect of absorbing information, and then adding sight to it, looking at it on paper, seeing where it is, that reinforces that learning. And then if we take notes, that of course increases our learning more. And then when we talk about it, maybe refer to it during the week, that deepens the understanding and the truth that we have. So we want to focus on being good students and learners of the word because Jesus said in the Great Commission, they shall know the truth, they shall follow and observe. And so we want to continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord. So I encourage you to follow along in this very simple discipline of looking at your Bible with me. So let me open with a word of prayer and then we'll get into the message for today. So Jesus, we thank you for the inspired word of God, that it's timeless, that it always speaks to us in every generation, every nation. Lord, that it brings encouragement, it brings comfort, that it's a living document, that no matter when we come to it, God, it has something to speak to our hearts. So Holy Spirit, we just call upon you and know that you will be faithful to speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word. We thank you now, commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my message this morning is Paul's Prayer for Us. That will be the focus of these eight verses that we go through. And how many of us appreciate when someone prays for you? Isn't it a blessing? And that's part of the reason why we have spiritual community, so that we can be with one another, we can be with the brothers and sisters, they can know what's going on in our lives, and we can have someone to reach out to and say, hey, can you pray for me? And this is a very sort of overlooked aspect of the community of faith because we get to really bring our request to God through the throne of grace. We literally get to intercede for our brothers and sisters. I know I would not be here as a minister and as a pastor after nearly 30 years were it not for many, many faithful people that prayed regularly and consistently for me. They prayed for my protection. They prayed for my endurance. They prayed for wisdom. They prayed me out of jams. They prayed for me during emergencies. They prayed for me during discouragement times. Prayer is so powerful. We have a prayer line here at Five Stones Church. The email address is prayer at, prayer at fivestoneschurch.org. Praying for one another is one of the ways that we can really bless and undergird and support and I think part of the encouragement that will come to us today is how we need to continue to leverage this tool that God has given to us so that we can build into one another's lives. And so we get to see 
a powerful, powerful prayer this morning that Paul prayed for us. And it would represent kind of a prayer for the ages. In other words, a prayer that is timeless, a prayer that continues to have force and blessing upon our lives. I've said before, of the millions and millions of prayers that have been prayed, only a few have made it into the Bible. Only a few have God said, that is so precious and so pure and so perfect, I need to put it into the inspired Word of God so that when generations read this prayer, they will be watered and they will be encouraged. And so this is one of the prayers that we're going to read this morning, an apostolic prayer that carries with it great, great power. So as we go through this passage, I'm going to break it down into three specific segments. Um, this is kind of the outline of how the message will go this morning. We're going to be looking at Paul's prayer. And there's three parts here that I'm going to break it down into. The first is Paul's inspiration for continuous prayer. The second will be purpose, the purpose of Paul's continuous prayer. And third, how Paul's prayer is drenched in this vision of Christ's greatness. So let's read verse 15 and 16 together. And I want to explain some of the phrases and words that are in this passage. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. This phrase, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, speaks of this ongoing, continuous session of prayer that Paul has. How would you like it if Paul were on your prayer team, if he were on your support team, and you know that you could rely on him to continuously pray for you, that it wasn't just a little five-second prayer and that's it, and then he'd forget about you. You know, many times when we say, yeah, I'll pray for you, it can almost be a glib thing, kind of a, a throwaway line. But do we actually follow through and pray and come back? And Paul says to these Christians here, I pray without ceasing for you, with thanksgiving and making mention of you in my prayers to God. Now, one thing I want to point out here in verse 15 that's a little bit unique, he says, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you think about and if you understand Paul's history as a church planter and as a missionary, he had three distinct tours of planting churches. In a 10-year period, he planted eight churches. That means on average, he planted a church every year, 1.2 to be specific. And actually, in the first and second planting tours, he planted a church every four months. I mean, this is a crazy rate of production. Paul was so powerful and so anointed, he could go into a city, gather some people, win some people to the Lord, plant a church, and then in four months, turn around and go and do it again. Well, what happened was, in his third missionary tour, he went to a region, he went to a city called Ephesus, and this was the religious center of the Roman Empire. So he went there, and the Bible says he spent three years there planting this church, pouring himself into it. And so obviously, he would have had very deep relationships with them. He would have become very affectionate towards them. We have built strong bonds of relationship. But when we read here in verse 15, he says, having heard of the faith. So this is a little bit like, why would you say that, Paul? You were with them for three years. Why would you write that you've heard of their faith? So this is a little nuance in the book because in the original manuscripts, it doesn't say in chapter 1, 
to the saints in Ephesus. It just says to the saints. So the way to think about this book and the reason why maybe Paul is not being as personal is because he was writing this letter to the churches in the area of Ephesus that he himself did not plant. In fact, he was writing this letter to granddaughter churches, churches that were planted out of Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. These are three cities that were, planted, that were planting churches that came out of Ephesus. So this is the reason why his tone is less personal because he's speaking to Christians that he did not necessarily meet. But he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and he has heard of their love for all the saints. Now these are two very powerful characteristics for a local church. Number one, we have faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that might seem very basic and very fundamental and something that we can easily overlook, but we're not like any other club. We are a very distinct society. We put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are unlike any other religion in the world. Why? Because our founder rose from the dead. He was resurrected. There was no other founder that is resurrected from the dead. We believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that may seem kind of exclusive, to our politi politically correct ears. But the reason why we embrace that exclusivity is because there's only one person that has rose up from the grave. There is only one founder that has said, you can't save yourself. Every other world religion says, be good enough. Do this, do that. Follow the rules, build your karma. Make sure you follow all these holy regulations. And if you're good enough, you get to go to heaven. That formulation is the formulation of you can save yourself. If you're good enough, if you do well enough, if you're nice enough, if the scales balance out, you get to go to heaven. In other words, you get to save yourself. Christianity turns that whole notion upside down. You can't save yourself, and you need a savior, and the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that when you put your faith in him, that's where your salvation is born. So Paul is saying, listen, there is a community of faith out there that believes in the Lord Jesus. They're not pagans. They don't believe in multiple gods. And as a church planter and as a father in the faith, his heart is so warmed. And then to hear that they have love for one another. What are the two greatest commandments? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Over and over again, the apostles have written to us the sign that the Spirit of God is in you. The fact that you have the Spirit of God reborn in you will manifest in the fact that you love one another. Now, this is a very hard thing for us to do as modern Christians because it's so easy for us to be in our own castles, in our own worlds, and to be just cordoned off from everyone else. But the mark of Christian community is a definite and distinct love for one another that will manifest itself in many ways, among which is prayer. In the early church, when the people saw the Christians gathering in the homes and the synagogues and the temples, they were blown away by the love. They were blown away by the unity. They were blown away by the generosity and the sharing and the caring that was going on. There is a corporate witness that created a hunger and a jealousy in those that were outside the faith. And they were like, we want to be part of that. We want to be part of that love. We want to be part of that unity and that passion. And so Paul has this inspiration that comes to his heart 
for continuous prayer. I want to keep sowing and praying into these churches in which the Christians are fully on fire and committed to the Lord Jesus. This whole notion of spiritual family is so important. And there is a constant war going on against spiritual family. There is a constant war going on preventing people from getting together, Christians with Christians, in Bible studies, in prayer meetings, in churches on Sunday morning. And unfortunately, COVID now has driven a wedge even more into this if we allow it. Well, we just get comfortable. We stay separated. We do what's convenient. I mean, it's an, kind of an ironic dynamic that we're forced to stream our services online, which allow you to stay separated. And yet, on the other hand, we should never let go of the priority of the assembling of the Christians. Being disconnected from the body of Christ is one of the enemy's greatest and best strategies for spiritual decline and dissipation. If I were to ask you to write down one or two persons that you know of that has fallen away or gone away from God just because they didn't go to church, I'm sure almost every single one of you could write down one or two. The strategy is so simple. Break the log off from the fireplace. Break the log off from the fire because then they'll cool down. They're not close to the embers. They're not close to the heat. It's why Jesus gave us the whole picture of the wolf picking off the sheep. They get separated from the pack and there's not the protection. Did you know that heaven is all about family? So I don't know if this is going to be good news for you or not. But in heaven, we will not have our own rooms and our own personal internet connection where we can watch Netflix, be on the internet, surfing our own movies, watching our specialty channels. There will be no TV. There's going to be no internet. Oh my goodness, what are you going to do with your time? Now, that might sound like a scary scenario, and heaven doesn't sound maybe so happy for you, but let's remember that heaven is going to be the ultimate social family time. And maybe you can't picture it, but trust me, it's going to be glorious. And so what we're doing down here is a part of a picture, part of the exercise of what's going to happen. We're not going to have the internet. It's not going to be gigabyte speeds of download. It's all going to be there because we'll be in the presence of God. So the inspiration that Paul has for continuous prayer comes out of a care and a deep burden. I pray for my kids. I pray for my wife every single day. Why? Because I love them to death. I care for them. I'm a watchman for them. I'm standing on my spiritual perch saying, okay, Spirit of God, show me things that I need to pray for. Sometimes it's super simple. Sometimes I may have to pray for several minutes or even for a whole season to pray one of them through a particular situation. I pray for the church on a regular basis. Why? Because I love you. Because I love what God is doing here. And so when we have a care and a burden, continuous prayer is a joy. It's a natural outflow. The riverbed does not go dry. There is a continuous flow of water. And so part of the reason why we don't pray continuously is we're just selfish. We're just constantly thinking about ourselves. We're constantly just completely embattled with our own needs, and we're not able to think outside of ourselves. 
Or maybe we're so consumed or we're so distracted with social media and all these different things. Even if you took one-tenth of the time that we spend on the internet or social media and then invested that in prayer, think what would happen around us. Continuous prayer sounds like a very difficult assignment, but it's not when you care deeply about someone or something. Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will pray. So in these first two verses here, we just see the, the engine that was behind Paul's discipline of praying for them without ceasing because it was out of this very, very deep care. You know, Paul was not a wealthy man. He had very few earthly possessions. He lived the humblest of life as a servant of God. As I mentioned at the time of this writing, Paul was in jail. I doubt he had to put anything in storage while he was incarcerated. He was used to the simple and Spartan life, befitting of a missionary on the move. Yet when it came to thinking about how to bless people, remember, first part of chapter 1, every spiritual blessing has been given to us. The God of blessing, this is, is his essential nature. And Paul has taken on the Father's heart. He wants to bless people, but he doesn't have money to bless people. And so he did not complain when he thought about his situation. He didn't complain that he couldn't buy gift cards or take people out for a nice meal. Instead, he drew upon the spiritual wealth that was within him. And the way he was going to bless them was to pray for them that they would come into the same spiritual revelation that he possessed. Which brings us to the next part of this passage. Verses 17 through 19 is going to give us a look at the purpose of Paul's continuous prayer. Why did he pray 24-7? Why did he carry this ongoing burden? So in verse 17, it says, I never cease to make mention of you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So here's the thing about Paul. Smartest man that ever lived outside of Jesus. He was the smartest man on the earth. He was the greatest theologian. He was the greatest educator. He was the greatest teacher. The Bible says to us that he was educated under Gamaliel, who was the master rabbi of that time. His parents sent him off to study under Gamaliel at a very young age. Rabbinic tradition was that you would memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and then you would go and study under the rabbis, the great rabbis, and they would unpack the wisdom that came out of the Torah. This is what we see with Jesus at the age of 12. He was in the temple talking to the rabbis. Paul also went through that same tradition, that same education track. And he was so smart and intelligent that Gamaliel received him into his school. It was like getting into the Harvard of rabbinic teaching. And so he was schooled and he understood and the one thing about rabbinic education is that they use argumentation to sharpen your thinking. It's not the Greek method where you sit there, take notes, and then put your answers on a test. The Jewish people used argumentation. Get up, dialogue, defend your position, go back and forth. That's why the Jewish people are so into hand-waving and arguing. 
That's their culture. That's their history. That's why they're so sharp. That's why Ruth Ginsburg became the first female Jewish Supreme Court justice. Number one in her class. The Jewish people are unparalleled in their thinking, and Paul represents the pinnacle of it all. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, our intellect is not enough. And Paul, despite all his training, became the greatest opposer of Jesus, arresting the Christians in the early church, hauling them off to jail, because despite everything he learned, he still couldn't see the truth. Not only could he not see the truth, he was hostile to the apostles, hostile to the doctrine of Christ, hostile to the doctrine of grace. And so God had to encounter him, as we read in Acts chapter 9. In the middle of the day, while he's on his way to arrest Christians, God came and encountered him, knocked him to the ground. He was blind for three days. And instantly, his whole education was overturned. His smarts was completely rearranged. And he realized it takes a spirit of wisdom and revelation to understand who this Jesus is. You know, we can go out there on the streets right now and ask people who, who Jesus is, and you'll get a thousand answers. People do not know. They're either parroting what culture has said to them, which is distorted or outright wrong, or they just don't know. Or maybe they've even gone to a Christian university, or maybe they've even gone to seminary. If revival were a function of education, then revival would be breaking out in Christian universities and seminaries. But they're not. Because we need a spirit of revelation. We need the Holy Spirit upon us. And so Paul had this revelation that so consumed him, he would ultimately be martyred. Doesn't matter if they beat me. Doesn't matter if they jail me. I am filled with the riches of Christ. I am filled with the glory and the understanding and the knowledge of God. And now he is praying this for you and for me, that we would get that same revelation, that we would get that same passion that comes out of that understanding. This is the thing that fills us and makes us so incredibly blessed and wealthy. You know, I love my Apple products. I love my Unigo clothes. I love my Big Mac meals. I love traveling and seeing exotic places. I love seeing the Eiffel Tower and the Swiss Alps, the fjords of Norway. It's so cool to be able to walk up the steps of the Great Wall. But those are nothing compared to the riches of understanding who Jesus is. You have a bank vault, dear Christian, that's inside of you that no one can break into. No one can break into the treasures that Jesus has given to you if you are born again. And so Paul, even though he was in jail, was rejoicing he was so thrilled because his eyes were not focused on what he didn't have his eyes were focused on the immeasurable blessed beyond store place and storehouse that he had and that comes by a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and he goes on to say in verse 18 i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling where are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Again, a packed verse. It's like eating a bowl of cereal and there's three raisins every spoonful. Just so much that's in here. I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. 
Seeing comes from the heart. Seeing comes from believing. Seeing doesn't come just purely through rational, intellectual. Now, as I've said before, over and over again, over the years, God loves our intellect. He created us to be intellects and to understand and to think deeply. Christians do not throw out their minds. But there is a priority and there's an order here. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the greatest thing that happened, the most devastating that happened, was their hearts became darkened and they could not see God anymore. They were groping around. The Bible says their relationship was so close to God, they could hear him walking in the garden. But now they lost their spiritual hearing. They lost their spiritual vision. And so basically Paul is saying here, listen, there's a way for us to go back to the garden. And I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Wow. Like you can see a postcard of the Pacific Ocean. You can see a postcard of some amazing mountain like at Whistler. But when you're actually there, you are stunned because you're immersed in it. And when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, opens your eyes and immerses you in who God is, takes your breath away. And you're transformed. That's a miracle. And your eyes are open to the hope of his calling. There's two senses, two kinds, or two aspects of this hope that God gives. Let's remember that God is a dealer in hope. He is the God of hope. Without hope, we die. Without hope, we give up on life. We may even try to pull the plug. So how does God give us hope? He gives us hope in this life, and he gives us hope for after this life. Through Jesus Christ, we have salvation that will go on for eternity. I've got eternity in front of me completely secured and locked up. It's amazing to think that the 80 years that I have on earth will be nothing compared to eternity after that. We love to plan. We love to think about what's coming down the road. In fact, part of our anxiety Part of our stress is, oh no, what's, going, what's the future going to hold for me? Well, what's the future going to hold for your soul after you die? What will happen one second after you die? What will happen to your soul? What will happen to your consciousness? And the Bible says that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's all secured. We go to him. That perspective gives us grace to walk through difficult times while we're on earth. We as North Americans, we are so blessed in the big picture. 80% of the world is living without the blessings that we have. I don't know all the statistics off the top of my head, but the number of people that are living without even water or barely surviving with food is in the billions. And we get to pick from sushi places and steak places and burger places and Italian places. Many people in the world are barely surviving. God gives us hope while we walk and while we have years on this earth. God has given us each a destiny. As I shared last week in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, before God called us, God destined us, God stamped us with a purpose. And so when we begin to see that hope and it becomes part of our personality and lodged in our emotions, Nothing can push us off center. Beloved, what I'm telling you this morning, this is the stuff that will make you strong. 
This is the stuff that will make you men and women of steel. This is the stuff that will help you to go through trials. You come back to the truth and you recite it to yourself and you preach the gospel to yourself and you say, I am an overcomer. This is the gospel that feeds us and makes us overcomers. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The hope of his calling and the glory of his riches in his inheritance, of his inheritance in the saints. Okay, that's kind of a complicated structure there. Last part of verse 18. Our heart, God, uh, Paul is praying that our hearts would be enlightened to see the glory of his inheritance in the saints. When I first read this, I thought it was written backwards. I thought it should read the glory of our inheritance in God. Yes, we have an inheritance in God, but Paul reverses this and he says, God's inheritance in us. What? Our sinful condition, our sad humanity, God has an inheritance in us. When we put our faith in Christ, the work of Calvary bears awesome fruit. And he glories in us. He revels in us. Mimi and, I are, Mimi and I are at an age now where we're transitioning, becoming empty nesters. And I'm already planning for grandkids before our kids are even married. I know that seems crazy, but on the other hand, it seems so real and so natural and so fun. We talk about how cute they're going to be, what a great grandmother Mimi's going to be. We're saving books for our grandkids to read. For those of you that are too young, there is a media form called VCRs. We have many VCRs that we showed our kids, and they've got some great Christian content. And I was in the process of decluttering and sorting out a lot of the electronics in my house, and I decided I had to keep our VCR player because someday I'm going to show my grandkids these great little VCR tapes, Veggie Tales and Bob and the little tomatoes, and you know what? It's going to be awesome. Now, why would I be doing that? Because I'm already anticipating the glory of my inheritance, the generational blessing that's coming. That's what God does with us. I can't wait to see little grandkids in the form of Kimmy and Heidi and Holly and Matt. My prayer is that God would give every single one of my kids a little version of themselves because I love them and delighted in them so much. I just want them to have a little version of themselves. God is so excited and amped up to spend eternity with us and all that he has prepared for you and me. We are his inheritance. The hard work of the cross is going to bear awesome fruit. Paul also says part of the unveiling of our hearts so that we would see the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. We've already talked about the resurrection. You can't have a greater expression of power than Jesus rising from the dead for you and for me. But on a daily basis, that power is accessible to us. Recently, Mimi just experienced a healing from her food allergies. That's the goodness of God. I cooked steak last night, and she had a huge piece, which she normally cannot eat. She's now enjoying God's greatness that touched her body. And we can go on and on. I don't have time to share all the different testimonies, how God comes into our daily routine to show his greatness and his power. 
but it has to be activated by faith. Not a faith where we're trying to grunt and make God give us something, just a trust, a childlike trust in who God is, and he will do it. This section here that we just covered represents the reason why Paul is praying without ceasing, so that the eyes of our heart would be opened. We would get this revelation. We have experienced the fullness of God that we can have what Paul had and possessed. So then Paul makes this little transition, and if you have read a lot of Paul, Paul has this habit of stating point A and then talking about A1 and then little a under point 1 and then A1 prime. And by the time you get down here to the fifth point, it's somewhat diverted. It almost looks like a rabbit trail from the main point. But the thing about Paul is he has so much revelation, so much understanding. Even his subpoints are major revelations. His footnotes, you could write a whole book on his footnotes. And so this is a situation here in verse 20 through 23 in which he begins to expand. He talks about how we need to have our eyes open to who Christ is. And then he begins to expand on this in verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These are the thoughts that are filling Paul's mind while he's in jail. Not about the bad food that's being served to him, not about the dark, damp cell that he's living in, not wondering about when his trial date is, not thinking or in stress about when he's going to be released. He is thinking, and he has a vision of the greatness of Jesus. And so here he is. He's blessing the body of Christ, even in his very difficult time. So we have this, in this third section here, just a broad description deep description of Jesus' greatness. He's raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God. Not just a couple inches. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every famous name, past, present, and future. Now let me point out something here. In verse 17, I'm connecting it now to what Paul is saying here in verse 20. Paul says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why we need to submit to authority, the reason why we need to submit to civil authority, the reason why we need to pray for authority is because Jesus modeled for us as one who is under authority. Authority is given by God. One of the great issues that we're experiencing in real time is this total disregard for authority defunding the police, tearing down the system. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people have gotten so angry that they've gotten to this point. George Floyd in Minneapolis, Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. These are horrible, egregious, colossal mistakes made by authorities. And they need to be reformed. But the answer to this is not to tear down the covering that God has ordained. 
which is given to us in Romans 13. I'm just going to remind us here for a moment because this is part of our witness as Christians. We're not called to protests and counter-protests. We're called to stick to the gospel. Romans 13 says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Get this. This is what the gospel says. Donald Trump was ordained by God. Barack Obama was ordained by God. Bill Clinton was ordained by God. Prime Minister Trudeau is ordained by God. All authority is appointed by God. Doesn't mean they're anointed. Doesn't mean they're righteous. Doesn't mean they're doing the right thing. But the Bible says to us that these authorities are appointed by God. And we as Christians, what we do is what Paul did. Paul was writing these very things, Christians that were going to be killed by Nero in the Colosseums. That is not where your focus should be. Your focus should be on the hope that's in you. And eventually, God will overcome evil with good. And so this whole idea of authority is built into the Godhead right here in Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that Jesus himself was under authority and that the Father is his God. How can that be? Jesus is God. And yet in the incredible doctrine of the Trinity, they're one in three and three in one. They're equal and yet there's a hierarchy and it's submission one to another. So coming back here to verse 21 and 22 will close here soon. Because of Jesus' death on a cross, the Lord has raised him up above every rule, power, dominion, and put all things in subjection to his feet and made him head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head, we are the body. We're connected to the head. We are seated with him in heavenly places. We are seated in Christ in heavenly places. We have a dominion. We have a blessing in him because he has placed us in him. This surpassing greatness is power that's on our side. So we look at this prayer for us. Amazing that it's captured in these short eight verses, and yet so filled with understanding that we need to grasp. And what should our response be to Paul's prayer for us? We need to pray it forward. This is an apostolic prayer for the ages. It's a prayer born of love for the local church. It's a prayer that's drenched in what we as theologians called Christology. This is how we pray with authority. If you ever say, I don't know how to pray according to the will of God, come to this passage, pray these words, and you will be praying the exact will of God, and you will be praying with great authority. This prayer is how we turn doctrine into intercession, how we tr turn truth into supplication, 
And here's the best part. This prayer is to be repeated for others. Pray it forward. Pray it forward. The great Apostle Paul prayed this for you and for me. I have this little prayer notebook that I've kept for 30 years. And early on in my Christian walk, I created 14 categories of prayer that I would pray. And on a daily basis, I would cycle through the prayer categories. And I just wanted to show this to you as just a little object lesson. Right here, for 20, 30 years, I have prayed Ephesians chapter 1 for my friends. Right down here, in little chicken scratchings, I list my friends. Tom, Jerry, Hannah, Allison. These are, I pray these things for you guys. And so I'm going to take credit for your spiritual progress. This is how we pray it forward. This is the best stuff. This is the best way that we can pray for one another. Go to Scripture and pray it forward. Father, we thank you this morning for this incredible prayer that's included and how we can come and open up the Bible and we can pray a gigantic prayer for our family, for our friends, for our church. We can pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open, that a spirit of wisdom and revelation would come upon us so that we can see the glory of your riches, what is the hope of your calling and the surpassing greatness of your power towards us who believe. Oh God, would you activate us and turn us into a house of prayer? Would you begin to fill the dry riverbeds, God, with the flow of intercession and joyful supplication as we lift up one another? Thank you, God, that as these prayers are prayed and as they come to pass in our lives, you continue to fill us up with immeasurable riches and we are blessed beyond measure. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. And uh, remember that we archive all our messages online. So if you want to listen to it again or you have a friend that you feel could be blessed or helped by it, then we encourage you to point them to our website. We'll see you next Sunday and have a great week.